Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is indeed coming up to four o'clock and time for Tuesday Home Time. I'm Joan Bartlett and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Thank you, Chris. Today, sugar. What is it doing to us? What isn't it doing to us? I'm speaking with research chemist Coral Winter. Australia, how low can we go? Jack Smith from the Human Rights Group Project, SAFECOM. Syria, what a difference Russia made by coming into the conflict. Speaking with Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria. Why is there violence in Palestine and Israel? Speaking with author, activist, playwright, Palestinian-Australian, Samar Sabawi. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. And he's coming up to his, his time of the year, I think. Cup day. A week, Jane Lister, when we learned how wrong we'd been. All these years falsely accusing great responsible corporates and great responsible caring business class patriots and their great responsible caring families of exploiting so-called tax havens like the Caymans to avoid tax. Sorry, to minimise their tax liabilities when this week we learned no. These falsely maligned people actually invest and profit through the Cayman Islands, for instance, to maximise their tax liabilities to ensure they don't avoid tax. Thus, we must, okay, reluctantly, but must acknowledge and admire the integrity and honesty of two senior and highly respected caring business class party politicians. Obviously, big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull, and on another level, Minister for Pollution and Fossils Greg Haunt the Greenies will come back to him. But just when we thought the Caymans were named after a voracious reptile to attract voracious human reptiles, it turns out Lucy and Malcolm have stashed billions away there, uh, sorry, invested billions there, just to ensure they do pay the appropriate tax. They obviously feel under true blue Aussie law they wouldn't pay enough, could, heaven forbid, minimise their tax liabilities, which, as we know, they can under our law. But important to note, no one practises tax avoidance, tax dodging. They just minimise. Lucy, true blue Aussie tax laws are so lax, it seems to me we wouldn't pay nearly enough on the billions we make. The, the good news is we transfer this fortune to the Cayman Islands and we can pay all the tax we should pay. Yes, I agree, Malcolm, dear. It's important we pay as much tax as we can, like all our friends who also have a soft spot for the Caymans. And, of course, such an honourable man as Tun of Bull wouldn't feed us a ton of bull, wouldn't obfuscate by telling us he pays his taxes in true blue Aussie on voracious reptile profits without clarifying just how much of the voracious reptile profits turn up as profits in true blue Aussie. Well, he doesn't have to. He's an honourable man, as the Bard wrote. So are they all, all honourable men like Greg Haunt the Greenies, who, when the evil long-haired commie Greenie wouldn't work in an iron lots, abused the legal system to win on a point of law, and therein winning lay the abuse, 
Greg promised he would ensure the Adani fossils got their environmental approval to enhance the Gullaly Basin environment with a beautiful, environmentally friendly coal behemoth. Environmentally aware, so aware, Greg determined the Adani bottom line was the only environment worthy of protection. The long-haired greeny lot never consider the economic consequences of their irresponsible nihilism. Adani so-called because it stitched up the deal with Greg and Malcolm and the team. This black-throated finch crap. They'll all have black throats once the coal gets going. <laughs> black-throated lynch the greenies. They all had a big laugh with the Adani board and one minister said they were confident Adani the environment would do nothing to damage the environment. He obviously hasn't bothered to study its environmental record in India. Well, well why would you? But Greg promised he wouldn't let environmental law get between a pile of coal and a pile of money. I have as much respect for the separation of powers as the next person as long as the courts do the right thing. So we must acknowledge and admire the integrity and honesty of these two men, Mel and Greg, voracious reptiles and voracious boardrooms. Not that we'd ever mention the words voracious and Gina in the same breath, but there's another case before the courts at the moment over two other Galilee Basin mines planned by Trublawazi's filthiest, richest person. The bloody long-haired greenies and local farmers are yet again threatening investment and jobs by opposing government approval for both mines. And of course, the approval has taken the environment into account. The selfish, greedy local farmers reckon the groundwater bores and aquifers they rely on for grazing will be polluted and depleted by Gina's attempt to assist the national economy. A true patriotic gesture and what thanks does she get? And there's no threat. Gina's very expensive silk said that. Our expert report shows the mine would be able to exist without having a significant effect on the water table. The report found there was little likelihood of damage to the Great Artesian Basin. A report commissioned by Gina. What, what more assurance do they want? I hope they wouldn't leap to irrational conclusions that little likelihood and without significant effect might lie in the eye of the beholder or the very expensive mouth for hire of the very expensive silk. Following our discussion last week about the broad foreign affairs differences between the US of the UN of the US of the world and True Blue Aussie, discussion with US Armed Secretary for World State John Caring for, for, true, for uh, Train Killers and our very own Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, we got them together again this week to discuss the threats we all face from evil China. And how do we know that? Because the US I've said so in its role as world peacekeeper. So we're standing up to China. We, we showed them by leaving them out of the not-so-free corporate trade agreement. Evil China poses a serious threat to world peace, a serious threat to the rights of our train killer vessels in the South China Sea, our train killer vessels maintaining peace in the international waters of evil China. And John, how many Chinese train killer vessels are maintaining war in the international waters off the US of?
Clearly, any movement by evil China to put train killer vessels anywhere near the U.S. of would be seen by all lovers of liberty, freedom, and democracy as a threat to world peace. An act of aggression, attack on international law, would necessitate the most severe train killer response in order to preserve the peace the U.S. of stands for. Uh, Julie, our immediate support for the U.S. opposition, does this jeopardise our relations with China, most of which, uh, from the government's point of view, are economic, and does it have anything to do with us anyway? We have an independent position on evil China, which I'll ask John to explain. Okay, thanks, John. Thanks, Julie. It's, it's so reassuring to have good people like John and Julie so devoted to peace, to making life safe for all of us, leaving us to ponder how evil these people must be who advocate and practice terror, who for no reason whatever feel slightly uncomfortable in our peaceful, safe society. Although good to see we're trying to welcome them into the bosom of our multiculturalism, embrace them by bracing them, well, sticking a tracking device on them after we release them from a bit of indefinite detention, keep them and their families and friends under constant surveillance, make them feel at home with daily headlines screaming, terror in our midst, all designed to make them realise their slight discomfort is misplaced. Don't suppose the protectors of our freedoms have thought that just maybe these measures might become less necessary, well, presuming they're necessary in the first place, if we didn't keep invading, murdering, destroying and slaughtering Islamic countries. Barack the Lionheart, Malcolm the Lionheart. These big supremo hopeful debates in the US of certainly analyse the big issues. At the Hillary and that lot debate last week, a journo really probed. Do black people matter, she asked. <laughs> now, what are the odds on anybody saying no to that one, regardless of whether they think black people matter or not? And surprise, surprise, they all thought blacks mattered. And the chair-type person asked whether any candidate did not support capitalism. We have to save capitalism from itself, Hillary spoke for all of them. And the US of taxpayers have sure as hell done that. The taxpayers bailing out the non-taxpayers. Final comment on the deep, deep debate. The so-called left-of-the-right candidate Bernie was asked, could a socialist ever win a presidential election? Got absolutely no idea why they asked him. On capitalism, non-socialism and the US of, this Princeton economist Angus Deaton has won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on Why the Poor Are Poor which I thought was pretty obvious. In fact, I might nominate my pretty obvious and give myself a chance for the prize next year. For instance, he studied whether malnutrition caused poverty by making people too weak to find work, but concluded that, no, no, being poor led to malnutrition. Gee, he gets 1.3 million for working that one out. So far, which should cover any of his personal poverty problems for a while and allow him to keep up the calories. And what a moving tribute, finally, as he waves the cheque at the acceptance ceremony. I couldn't have done this without the poor, without the destitute. To the poor! Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like to say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow, he's in, back here at 9 o'clock until 10 
with Corey Green for his program City Limits. Been going for many, many years now in a top program. Nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And the time now coming up to 12 minutes past four o'clock. And you're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your old radio, 8.55am. You could be listening on your digital radio, 8.55am. Or it might be called 3CR. And of course there are the two options or three options on your computer, 3cr.org.au. Have a look at that and find out what suits you. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Hark back to Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It would seem the situation has become worse in terms of our consumption of sugar, but does it matter? How much sugar we consume? Are the warnings about sugar just another fad? Like dairy is bad, red meat is bad, carbohydrates are bad, or is it really a case of moderation in what we eat? I'm speaking with research chemist Coral Winter. First, Coral, we need to identify the sugar that we're focusing on. Can you fill that in? Well, we're talking about the sugar that's added to soft drinks, cakes, biscuits, that's added to about 80% of all the products, processed food you find in the supermarket. Disaccharide, they call it, made up of one molecule of glucose and linked to one molecule of fructose. That's the one that's used in Australian foods. Now, the sucrose will be broken down immediately in the saliva and the stomach to glucose and fructose. And it's the fructose that causes so many problems because the glucose will be used, utilised by all the cells in the body as a source of energy. In particular, you need it for the brain. But the fructose just goes straight to the liver and is normally, most of it will be metabolised into fat and stored as fat. And the worst thing about it is that it is stored as fat around all the vital organs. Just give us an idea how long this has been going on And to what extent sugar is added to food and drinks? It's been going on since the 50s, really, when they started growing huge amounts of sugar in um, the United States and in which they forced any sort of criticism of uh, sugar in the diet to be silenced as as, um, one of the well-known biochemists and nutritionists from the uh, 50s in Britain was able to determine that it wasn't fats that were causing all the heart problems. They had a massive increase in heart problems after the Second World War when people began to get back to a a normal diet after all the shortages in the war. But it wasn't the fats that they thought were causing all the heart problems and thrombosis and heart attacks, but it was the sugar 
but he was attacked by the US Sugar Food Manufacturing Corporations and considered a quack and so they got away with it, blaming fats and really the whole problem for a lot of the dietary um, health problems was actually sugar. So it's been going on for say 60, 70 years, yeah. And increasing all the time. Yes, and so the amount of sugar they're putting into, it's just horrendous, but the amount of sugar you've got in just a can of drink is 25 grams of sugar. And we're only supposed to be taking about 10 grams of sugar a day to remain healthy. It's double that. And then they've increased the volume of the drinks. You know, it used to be just in a small can or a small Coke bottle. People probably remember that. But now it's 600 mils, so you're drinking even more sugar. Um, and it's because you like the taste of it, and so you can they can sell more. There's one chemist who has worked out a bliss point where, where the sugar gives you the maximum amount of... Uh, they put so much sugar in the food that it gives you a maximum amount of pleasure but not so sweet that you um, feel a bit nauseous from it. So they work out the bliss point of all the food. So they took out all the fats from the food because they thought it was the, heart, the cause of the heart problem and replaced it with sugar. And then they advertised all that food as fat-free but all the sugar in it just gets converted to fat in the body. Is sugar addictive? The way it works is that because the fructose isn't seen by the brain and by the uh, hormones in the brain as it's not registered by the hormones like leptin, which then tell you the stomach that it's full and you've eaten and you don't need to eat anymore. It's not registered by that, so you keep eating it. So it is a sort of addictive because it gives you a, a feeling of a fullness and of being um, not being hungry but after a few like half an hour or so the insulin kicks in and takes all the sugar immediately out of the blood into the cells and then you get a low because it's only the disaccharide and not your polysaccharides which is in rice and potatoes uh, it acts very very quickly very fast so that your sugar levels in the blood drop the glucose levels in the, in the blood drop very, very low and give you uh, a feeling of being very empty. And so then you need another hit of sugar. So that, in that way, it makes it sort of addictive. And the sugar industry has known for a long, long time that there's a problem with their product, but they've been very clever, like many industries. They've employed high-powered people to push their message and also to in, influence governments. Yeah, that's, that's right. They're a very powerful industry, a very powerful lobby. When they thought that sucrose was a problem, then they shifted to the high fructose levels from corn, which is even cheaper than sucrose, and so then said that it's fine because the fructose doesn't um, add any calories to the body so you can eat as much as you like, and, and that's how they convinced everybody in the United States anyway to eat the high corn fructose additives. Tell us the story about fluoride and how fluoride became part of our water systems now due to the sugar industry. Well, what happened was when the chemist, the, the nutritionist, the British nutritionist, John Yadkin, in 1957, when he realised that it wasn't um, fat and it was actually due to sugar, and, and the sugar industry knew there was a food manufacturer. It's not really the production of sugar. It's the food manufacturers, the one who process all the food and produce it into all sorts of you know, products that we eat from the shelves. 
when they um, realised that there was a bit of a problem with sugar causing dental caries in children at least, you know, right in the early 50s, they knew that, then what they did was convince government to put fluoride in the water or to talk about plaques or to talk about how they should deal with the dental problems rather than talking about the um, health effects of sucrose. What about the artificial sweeteners that's in foods now? Is that a problem as well? Yes, that's going to be a problem because now they're, going to, they're shifting to stevia, which is a herb, which is even cheaper than sucrose, even cheaper than the um, high levels of fructose in the corn that they were using, the additives. They're going to um, now um, stick to stevia, but nobody knows if um, stevia is um, going to cause any health problems. Nobody has um, any idea at all. And you also have to add it to maltodextrin. It has to be added to the product as well. So that's going to cause a lot of um, extra calories as well. But they'll make a fortune out of it. They'll make a fortune out of everybody shifting from sugar sweeteners to stevia and, and still buying all their processed food. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of Agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR spreading the seeds of dissent. And before that announcement, you were listening to research chemist Coral Winter talking about sugar. Enough to turn you off soft drinks, isn't it? And cakes and biscuits and bread and everything else that they put sugar in these days. They say it's good for you. I don't think so. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Early this morning I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, representing the group Hands Off Syria. And my first question to Tim was how the media, the mass media, is dealing with the situation in Syria now that the Russians have intervened. First of all, let's recognise that the Russian intervention in Syria is on the invitation of the Syrian government and in coordination with the Syrian armed forces, which makes it entirely different politically and legally compared to the Australian or the, or the US uh, intervention. Of course, the media has now been very loyal to the, the U.S. aims of the war against Syria in the last few years, really, really consistent with all of that. So that now they're really... They started off by trying to tell stories about the Russian 
air campaign, similar to what they've been doing about the Syrian army for a number of years, but the Russia has a stronger voice in the media. They've got their own television station. They've got a whole range of different um, media channels, you know, so they're able to respond to it rather effectively and day by day. So it's been more difficult for the, the Western media to manage this sort of disinformation war that they've been involved in. But they still persist. We're still talk, hearing stories about the Free Syrian Army. Who are the Free Syrian Army? Yeah, well, they don't even refer to that. That was a group that was really more or less a... Um, the Free Syrian Army was never an army. It was, there was a network which was given that name for the, use of, for the purpose of distribution of arms and funds. So there was a whole lot of different militia that tapped into it, the Farouk Brigades and the Khalid bin Walid Brigades and so on. And the central point was more or less to do with arms distribution and finance. There was no command in that sort of sense. Most of them defected into other groups quite a long time ago, like the Islamic Front that's still got its base in northeast of Damascus, and now what Turkey and the Saudis put together in the north, which was called the Army of Conquest, which is Jabhat al-Nusra and a number of the Islamist groups that were in the Free Syrian Army before. So they generally talk about them as moderate rebels or something like that, basically, without too much detail, because the detail's rather embarrassing once you get down to it. And then they, the Western media had really tried to make a very strong distinction between ISIS or ISIL or Daesh and all of the other groups, which more or less they've been trying to say all of the other groups are moderate rebels, basically. And uh, that's been a point of contention, obviously, between the Russians and their media and the US and their media, basically, that um, the US has been saying that you're bombing our people, which is true in, a, in many respects, or you're bombing moderate rebels, which is false. And the Russians say, you know, the, the terrorists are terrorists, you know, and there's a number of the groups, apart from ISIS, which are internationally banned terrorist organisations like Khorasan and Jabhat al-Nusra, for example, who are working with all of the other groups. Well, the Guardian in England certainly hasn't given up on the the free Syrian army. They've got their front page story in this week's mm. The Guardian Weekly. The Guardian's been one of the strongest advocates of invasion. The Guardian in the UK and Human Rights Watch in the US. It's interesting because what you might have considered in the past as small illiberal sources have actually been the strongest, the most aggressive of all of this all of the media for direct intervention, which is a turnaround, really. You know, we used to think in the past that the hawks in the military were the ones that were aggressive and the doves in the, uh, the liberals in the State Department diplomacy were more soft. That might have been the case with direct invasion, like the invasion of Iraq, but when it comes to these dirty wars which are being fought through proxy armies, really the liberal media have come into their own. The Guardian in particular has been extremely aggressive um, and consistent in its misinformation about what's going on in Syria. And Human Rights Watch, the same. Human Rights Watch was more aggressive than the Obama administration, for example. I'm just reading back over some material on Human Rights Watch. And when the Obama administration was talking about symbolic missile strikes on Syria, the head of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, was saying, no, we need much more than that. We need much more forceful um, bombing of Syria. It's amazing, isn't it, that they can still call themselves human rights and, and promote bombing. Yeah, and people, I think, in, in the past, in the, in the re- fairly recent past, were used to thinking that channels like Al Jazeera and, and the, the UK Guardian and uh, the US Washington-based group Human Rights Watch were somehow sort of softening the, sort of the, the approach of the British and the US administrations. It's been the, the reverse during the, the war in Syria. Let's talk about what the impact of the Russian intervention in Syria has meant. It's been a very powerful intervention. It means that uh, they've rolled back some of the gains that 
the Islamist groups made this year. There was two, three really main foci of, uh, there's more than that really, but there's three main foci of where the, the military incursions have been happening in Syria this year. One was from the south, backed by Israel and Jordan, and because they can keep coming across the Jordanian border, whether it's ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra or any of them, it's always a hot spot down there for the Syrians. The other one is in the northwest, where Turkey, backed by the Saudis, have sent in this big conglomerate, very large numbers of fighters that they, they've now rebadged earlier this year, the Army of Conquest, Jaysh al-Fateh, and that includes the old Jabhat al-Nusra, the official al-Qaeda, and a number of other groups, Khorasan, also an al-Qaeda group, and and the remnants of the Free Syrian Army, the various brigades that used to be in the Free Syrian Army there. So they're the ones mainly that the US has been calling moderate, and they went in such numbers with the backing of the Turkish military and intelligence that for a number of months they took over territory in, in parts of the northwest of um, Syria. And on the other side, of course, on the east, you've got ISIS coming from Iraq, with the US doing some selective bombing, but by no means stopping ISIS going into other areas of Syria. In some respects, the US... Uh, Air Force presence, which Australia has now joined in, has been pretty much a no-fly zone protecting ISIS in the east of Syria. That is to say, they bombed them a bit when they went up to the Kurdish areas because some of the Kurdish leadership has a collaborative relationship with the US. But when they've gone to the Syrian areas, like in Derizur or when they took over Palmyra, for example, there was no bombing at all. So you've got those different areas there that have been hot spots, I suppose. Now, when the Russians have come in, They've done it on the basis of international agreements over uh, the need for coordinated efforts to attack terrorism and, and ISIS in particular. But they've uh, attacked also the groups that, like Jabhat al-Nusra and Khorasan that are in with all of the other Islamist groups coming from Turkey, and that's been the sort of the dispute between the US um, you know, war line and, and the Russians. Um, what the Russians have done is provide very strong air cover for the ground troops, the Syrian army, which is reinforced by Hezbollah, and some other militia. No official troops from Iran or any other countries. There's been a lot of rumours around that the Cubans are there and the Iranians are there. There's no official troops. There are Shia militia, as well as Hezbollah from Lebanon there with the Syrian army. So those ground forces coming in behind the air attacks have, have retaken a number of areas in Hama, for example, and Aleppo, and they're moving into Idlib now. So uh, it's been quite significant. It's turned the tide in many respects, and the Russians have been saying that uh, a lot of those Islamists are now fleeing back into Turkey, where they, where most of them came from. Is a question to be asked, why did the Russians wait so long? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, formally speaking, they say they weren't asked before, but of course, you know, when people are talking about these things, you only ask when you know you're going to get a good response. So it's not quite clear exactly where the delays there came from, but it certainly is the case that there were some major offensives this year which tested the capacity of the Syrian army. After all, they're fighting quite a number of fronts, on dozens of fronts, really. And one of the problems this year, and this goes to the great myth of the supposed gap between the moderate rebels and, and the extremist rebels, is that there was coordination between the invasion of Syria from the northwest and uh, ISIS from the east, because there are a number of operations where, for example, the Syrian army threw their weight over towards ISIS in eastern Homs or Palmyra area, and then... Uh, the other side took advantage of that and came down in Idlib in Hama and they had to move their special forces back the other side. It's always been a problem, but it was particularly severe this year that the army had to not only fight on a number of fronts at once, but also deal with what appeared to be coordinated offensives that were you know, distracting their main, 
the main forces. You know, they've got some particular Republican guards and and uh, mobile armoured forces, which can which are quite can move around quite rapidly. But if there's two big offensives going on at once, it's stretching their capacity. What actually has been, or what is known about the support that the the rebels are getting from America? I know there are the airstrikes, but people saying that they've been pretty ineffective. What about on the ground and in what sort of money and arms and things like that? They're very... Of course, this has been at the root of the the smokescreen about what's going on here. We know from the evidence of the last, you know, almost five years that the US and its allies have supported every single armed group in Syria against the government, every single group. How they do it um, has varied to some extent because we know that there was a a failed Pentagon program to train fighters and that's sort of been a lot of fun has been poked at that supposedly they were training to fight against ISIS as opposed to not fighting against the Syrian government but at the same time there was a CIA program of more than a billion a year for a few years which has trained thousands of fighters and we know that they've pretty much all defected to ISIS which is to say they're following the money by and large and ISIS we know was creation of Saudis with the backing of the US so the US has always been in control there, but they used the Saudis when ISIS was created in Iraq back in 2006, before the, the Syrian crisis. And then during the Syrian crisis, it's gradually migrated across and now, you know, straddles the border. So the US support for ISIS has been admittedly, they have admitted on their part that their major allies have been financing it. It's not just through selling oil and so on. You can't just pick up arms that are left by the side of the road there. They're getting arms direct and financed direct from Turkey and from the Saudi Arabia and from Qatar also. Qatar, which used to support most of the Free Syrian Army groups because they were linked by the Muslim Brotherhood. So there, is some, there are some tensions between those groups, but they also collaborate together more often than not. Now, in Iraq, there's been quite a lot of sources from all through last year and this year. They believe that the US is directly arming ISIS in Iraq. What proof do they have of that? Well, there's half a dozen uh, senior officials, members of parliament and so on that say, look, we've seen helicopters and and planes dropping these sorts of things. The US admits that most of the arms are American arms that ISIS have, but they say that they've stolen them from the Iraqi army or some of the airdrops have been accidentally picked up. There's been a video of this sort of stuff that they've dropped arms and then, you know, accidentally it fell into the ISIS area. So there's a whole lot of pretexts as to why they're not doing it because it's fundamental to their story that... They've got a war on ISIS that's, um, you know, they can't really admit this. Uh, but everyone else in the Middle East is saying that um, even some very biased opinion polls done by a British agency in both Syria and Iraq, most of the people in both those countries believe that the US is directly supplying with arms. There's not much difference between the Saudis supplying with arms and the US supplying with arms, but that sort of has been a, a part of the US plan that somehow or other the Saudis are independent agents and, and can do things with U.S. arms without U.S. permission, which is preposterous, really. The U.S. always controls. They always have bans on the re-export of their arms and so on. So the U.S. Vice President, the head of the armed forces, Martin Dempsey, have all admitted that their allies, particularly the Saudis, Turkey and some of the other Gulf states, have been arming them. Whether they're directing arming them, in a sense, then becomes an academic sort of exercise. Although just recently you may notice that with the Russian strikes, and they were particularly focusing on arms depots, also command centres, but also arms depots, where they were manufacturing. They manufacture a number of handmade, they call them hell cannons. They're like great big bazookas in in gas canisters. Uh, They've been destroying them. 
but then the US was reported as having dropped 50 tonnes of arms to the moderate rebels, and they always put this in very vague sort of terms. I had looked to see what part of Syria they were going to. They were going to near Raqqa, which is really the only major group there is, is ISIS. Basically, they took it over from the others some time back. So they are claiming now there's some sort of moderate rebels who are fighting ISIS around the town of Raqqa in Eastern, which is more or less the capital of ISIS. So it could be, it seems like, seems likely to me that they are, as well as indirectly backing ISIS, they're also directly, uh, covertly supplying arms to them. Are there still the stories that ISIS controls oil fields and they're getting all their, a lot of their money from that? Yes, they do control some oil fields in Derizur, but Derizur has been, um, there's a Syrian army presence there as well, so it's not quite as strongly controlled as Raqqa. Raqqa's been bombed recently, but... Effectively, they did control most of Raqqa there. Raqqa's a fairly big town, seven or 800,000 people, something like that. So they haven't been carpet bombing it because it's a significant town in itself. I mean, the Syrian army. The Russians have been going in and, and targeting that. But the Syrian army has always had a quite strong presence in Derizur and has taken back an airport just recently by themselves with their air force and their, and their ground forces. But nevertheless, ISIS has been extracting some oil and selling it through Turkey into Europe, it seems. So that's been a sore point for the Syrian government. They've been saying, you know, if you want to fight ISIS, why, don't, why do you allow all of your allies to buy their oil, basically? But I don't think really that's the, the major source of their finance, nor the weapons that they undoubtedly got from the Iraqi army, which, by the way, has got another offensive. The Iraqi army is now re reclaiming territory from ISIS. And that's mainly because you may have noticed that there is this, now this alliance, not just Russia and Syria, but Russia, Syria, Iran and Iraq, and their intelligence post is now Baghdad. Now, that's particularly significant for the U.S. role in the region because, remember, of course, Iraq was the one that they went in for the big war and, um, and made all sorts of efforts to try, and everyone assumed, I suppose, you know, including me some time ago, that Iraq, the government in Iraq was now a U.S. puppet. But it's, been, it's not quite the case. They've been significantly independent, and they haven't used U.S. armed forces in a number of their offensive against ISIS in recent times. They've relied a lot more on Iran. This is what the Bush administration was worried about when they created ISIS back in 2006. They were very worried that having put Iran and Iraq against themselves with the, the war in the 80s and backing Saddam Hussein and having deposed Saddam Hussein, they were worried the consequences of their actions were that Iran and Iraq were going to develop much better neighbourly relations. And indeed, that's happening. And so now you've got Russia, Syria, Iraq, Iran all cooperating and sharing intelligence through Baghdad and uh, that's really constitutes a major challenge to the influence of the US in the region. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Jane Bartlett with you and I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria. And where do the Kurds fit in? You said that some of them are supported by the US. What about the rest? The Kurds have always been rather diverse except to the extent that there's always been this strong identity where they they have this idea of a, a more a more autonomous homeland the major fighting group in syria has had pretty good relationships with the syrian army historically the kurds are mainly in four countries like iran iraq syria and turkey and the worst relationships are with the turks who are now the turkish government is involved in heavy fighting with the, with the uh, militia of the kurds there after that was uh, under Saddam Hussein, of course, there were, there were terrible relations between the Kurds there. 
in Iran and Syria, there were much better relationships. And at the beginning of the Syrian conflict, Bashar al-Assad effectively gave them significant autonomy there. And then there's, since then, there's been cooperation between the Syrian Arab army and the, the Kurdish militia in Syria. But in Iraq, the US has really tried to play the Kurds in the north off against Baghdad to keep Baghdad weak. That is to say, they've backed them um, doing deals with uh, oil multinationals, for example, and they've um, undermined Baghdad's control of the country. And um, that's been fought for a number of years by, by Baghdad, and Baghdad won a court case recently over a shipment of oil. So I think the Kurdish area, for example, is selling oil to Israel, for example. Israel's getting quite a bit of its oil from that area. So when ISIS went up into the Kurdish areas, you remember there was your city people who got attacked and so on, there was some genuine bombing, I call it a cattle prodding operation, to move them away from those potential allies. Because, you know, the, to control these parts of the world, the US has wanted to have compliant regimes. But they never really get it, a fully compliant regime. Um, you know, in Iraq, they haven't had it. And so the plan B, basically, then, is to try and partition the country to weaken the central government and to try and empower regional administrations that they might be able to work with. So the Kurds in northern Iraq, and lesser so in northern Syria, but to some extent some of the groups there have been happy to take U.S. Um, backing. There's been sort of really a weak sort of backing um, in terms of weapons to the Kurds in Syria by the U.S. because there are contradictions there because Turkey is such a strong enemy of, of, the, of the Kurds in that part of the world, basically, and Turkey's their major ally in, in trying to uh, overthrow Syria. There's some tensions there. Well, the Kurds continue to pay a big price in Turkey. There are the stories that the recent bombing was against the Kurdish people, although the government is looking for two ISIS terrorists. Yeah, well, of course, but people in Turkey know that the, the government has backed ISIS in many respects, you know, and they've been mm. very unhappy with that for a long time. Those Islamist groups are controlling the the camps all along the border, the border crossings and so on. That rally that was bombed in Turkey was had a lot of uh, Kurdish supporters there. I think it uh, might have been mainly Kurdish supporters and their allies, basically. And, you know, as I say, within Turkey, um, the Kurds are considered their main enemies, basically. So there's this great tension there. The Turkish government has pretended to be attacking ISIS, but uh, everyone knows they've been mollycoddling them along with the other groups, which they call, you know, the Army of Conquest there. So... So there's significant contradictions in that part of the world and um, the Kurds have been more or less divided on things, but it depends on the country that you're in, basically. And what does the turning of events with the Russian intervention mean for Erdogan in Turkey? Well, it's, it's quite important. I think it's not a slight change, it's a significant change and um, because one of the biggest problems for Syria reclaiming some sort of stability was that... Um, that Turkish border is just uh, been a conduit for any, any international jihadi that wants to come along and make a name for themselves or die or whatever, you know. So, so long as Erdogan had such an aggressive stance to Syria, it's really not possible to, to stop the terrorism and, the, and the, um, the jihadis coming across from the north. On top of that, you have to appreciate that Turkey is a NATO country. So if there's any semblance or pretext of an aggression by Syria, and they, they've claimed it, Syria's been very cautious, really, with Israel, as with Turkey, but uh, they can call on the, the other NATO countries to come and support them. With the Russian presence there, that's all changed a lot, because the Russians have pushed up to the border, and where the, the Syrians were more reluctant to, to push up to the Turkish border. Russia, you 
notice, has a couple other things going for it, not just military strength, but Russia has tried to maintain good workable relationships with both Israel and Turkey. Now, a lot of people in Syria don't like this, but you know it's a game on the, on the big stage. And really what they've done, is, I'm sure what Putin did was before they sent the Russian Air Force into Syria was to try and defuse any possible tension with Turkey and Israel, keep them out of it, pretend that they're, they're friends, because when you fight any sort of war, you don't want to fight several enemies at once, you want to isolate them. So they wanted to isolate these groups which, you know, the whole, you know, the real international community does agree that, um, that these groups should be suppressed, uh, ISIS and the other terrorist groups there, but without the risk of escalating with um, clashes with, with Turkey and with Israel. With the US too, for that matter, apparently the Russians have negotiated an agreement with the US, a limited agreement, so that they don't put each other at risk. But the US has been reluctant to take it much further because the US has been playing this double game, which the Russians are taking advantage of now pretending that they're fighting these groups that they're supporting. Just how involved is NATO in Syria, apart from the US? Well, the other two major players you probably know have been Britain and France. The British were involved since 2012 in supporting, giving material support to Islamist groups. They've been vague about the details, which groups they were and so on, which, um, I mean, indeed, if you looked, if you looked at the, the US media two, two and a half years back, they were admitting there was no... There was no secular forces on the ground. There were no mo- there was no moderate sources on the ground. Actually, from the beginning, they were all Islamists. The insurrection in, in Syria was all Islamists, but they pretended for a while that there was a secular opposition making use of the fact that there had been political reform rallies. Of course, none of those rallies had anything to do with the armed insurrection in Syria. But the British, from the early days, were you. If you stretch your mind back, you might remember they were talking about non-lethal aid, and then they were talking about lethal aid to the the moderate opposition which was defending itself from the regime forces and so on. So they went through different sorts of ways of putting what they were doing, but it was mainly the British and the French, the two former colonial powers, remember, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire 100 years ago, was, of course, the British and the French that occupied that whole region, you know, Palestine, Iraq, all through that region, and then divided it up, and eventually there were, you know, independent states sort of created and some artificial states like a confessional Lebanon and uh, Israel and so on put in there by the British and the French. So they've been the two major allies of the US and then Turkey, of course. They're the four major NATO players in the whole, the whole mix, the US, Turkey, Britain and France. Talking about the Palestinians in Syria, the area of Yunuk, which is the... Big, a huge refugee camp. It's a big suburb of Damascus. There is a story in the Electronic Intifada in the last week saying that a young Palestinian who was awarded for his photography documenting life in a besieged refugee camp has been reported, has been arrested by Syrian secret police in Damascus. Yep. What do you know about that? Oh, I don't know anything about it. It's probably true. Why would they be arresting the Palestinian journalist. That is a, a really a sealed area because ISIS uh, was invited in by Jabhat al-Nusra earlier this year, about, I think, April this year, and they destroyed the Hamas militia there. The Hamas militia split up, and uh, um, Hamas militia had invited Jabhat al-Nusra in the first place. Jabhat al-Nusra invited ISIS in. The main fighters there are now ISIS since about April, and um, it's surrounded by the Syrian army. 
the internal policing is to do with is really they, the Syrians have handed over to uh, the Palestine Liberation Army and the Popular Front the militia. There's two militias that are loyal to and work with the Syrians, but it's virtually a ghost town now. There was there used to be 150,000 people in Yarmouk. Um, I visited the outskirts of it a couple of months ago. Most of them have gone to other parts of Damascus. Some of them are on the outskirts, uh, in schools and things like that, or others are in, with families in Jaramana, other par parts to the, no the northeast. But there would be less than 10,000 people in that area now where there was 150,000. There's a group of ISIS in there who are being fought at the moment by those Palestinian militia I mentioned. Uh, and the, the army checkpoints around Yarmouk are much, more, much tighter than they are in the rest of Damascus because they don't want, the, of course, those groups spreading into the rest of Damascus. But at the same time, the Syrians have always given a big degree of autonomy to the Palestinian management of those areas. But there is a very strong Syrian army presence around Yarmouk, and anyone coming in and out is going to be scrutinised pretty heavily. So people can't just wander in and out, basically. It doesn't matter who you are. As you said, Tim, you were there a couple of months ago. What are people saying to you who still live there about how things have changed for them in those last couple of weeks or months in Syria? It's funny, um, you know, you, you always, you can't place too much um, emphasis on just impressions, you know, but I, I visited there two years ago and um, when I went back this time, there was a funny contradiction. On the one hand, economically things are worse, significantly worse. The displaced people, there's, there was always a lot of displaced people, there's perhaps more displaced people now. Damascus is massive. Damascus used to be 5 million people, is now 8.5 million people, something like that. On the coast, in the south, in Suede, there's huge camps of people. We've talked about Yamuk of 150,000. The displaced Syrians are much bigger than, than that in, in many parts of Syria now. So there's a real change there. On the other hand, the control of the cities in terms of security and daily life is better than it was two years ago and that really puzzled me I didn't really quite understand that because as we were saying before there's been these new offensives where the western backed Islamists have taken over some parts of Syria that they didn't have before like in the north and some parts of the east even though in the cities themselves the major cities the control by the Syrian government is um, stronger for example I've travelled from Suwaida in the south through Damascus to Homs to the coast, five major cities and you could do it just in a car, you know, um, without particular great security. We had to go around one one area where there was some fighting. Two years ago, I couldn't do that at all. Couldn't get to the south. Couldn't drive up to Homs normally because of the presence of Islamists in the Kalamun and so on. So, strangely enough, you know, it, there's some contradictions there, basically. The other thing is that people in Syria are very poor at the moment. They're very hurt by the sanctions, you know, which is affecting critical things like the health system and so on. On the other side, the Russians and the Cubans are helping them with their health system, but and the sanctions are there. People are very poor. The, the, the salaries they've got are very poor. You know, the Syrian army, for example, the soldiers are paid less than a half, perhaps a third of what the Islamist soldiers are paid by the Gulf Arabs. That's an unusual situation. You know, usually you have rebels who are doing it for nothing and the army are, are paid people. Here, the, the reverse occurs more or less. But somehow people are, are surviving and, and doing things. There's food that people are getting on with their lives. The infrastructure, the roads, things like that are very good. It's, that's surprising too because infrastructure is very expensive. So somehow there are some very strong social bonds within Syria that allow people to survive when times are really tough. They pretty much hang together because 
there's overwhelming support for a pluralist Syria, for one that's not sectarian. And, of course, the opposition is just horrendous. No, you know, no one, and that includes Sunni Muslims, you know, maybe there's a few percent of people there that support ISIS and the other groups, but pretty much no one wants, wants those sort of people to be running their lives. You know? So the, the social forces that bind Syrians together and the pluralism and sharing things, you know, when, when all these displaced people come into an area, for example, you've got another 100,000 people in, in an area say 100,000 Sunni Muslims in, or actually there's almost half a million in Sweden, which is almost all Druze. And those two groups are more or less getting on very well and, you know, being looked after. So that, the crisis in a sense is testing out all those sort of social bonds and they seem to be holding for the most part, basically, despite the poverty and the shortages of things that are going on there. So that's, that was strikingly something that really struck me when I was there last time. And are you speaking with people at the moment in Syria? Yeah, yeah, of course, like every day, um, a lot of them are on social media. There's actually quite good internet in, in Syria, so there's a lot of social media there. You know, the other side have got that too, and they're more or less reinforced by mainly their foreign branches. There's a lot of Islamists in Europe, for example, that are um, reinforcing those sorts of messages. But Syrians themselves have got a lot... They're not really given any space in the Western media. This is one of the big problems of the the disinformation campaign, but anyone who seems to be vaguely pro-government in the past was really, was like, such as myself, for example, was basically blacklisted in the Western media. Now, with the Russian presence there, it's a little bit different because the Russians have their own media and that media has an impact. And when you have evidence that comes out, as in the last couple of days, of a senior al-Qaeda leader being killed in northwest Syria, whereas I think the US media has been trying to say, oh, there's no ISIS in northwest Syria... But this guy was a leader of Jabhat al-Nusra and Khorasan, groups banned by the US themselves and so on. And the US media hasn't got it all its own way with, with those sort of stories these days. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jack. And that's Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer at Sydney University and um, involved with the group Hands Off Syria. It's 4.53. Well, I gotta keep on rolling like a rolling stone. 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of Beyond the Bars 2015 CD. The CD features highlights from the Beyond the Bars NAIDOC Week broadcast from July this year. Come to Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street on Thursday, the 29th of October at 6.30 to 8.30. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration question and answers and music. The night will be emceed by Kutcher Edwards, so please come to the launch and celebrate with us the achievements of this amazing project. But now I'm passing on through like that he's been blowing up the desert sand. Sunday, October the 25th, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, representing over 40 unions, Palestine solidarity groups and civil society organizations around Australia, will be holding its annual fundraising dinner at Aurora Receptions in East Brunswick. The dinner will be chaired by the writer, comedian and political satirist Brian Doe. APAN is the only national-level Palestine advocacy organization in Australia. If you want to support the Palestinians' struggle for freedom, meet interesting people and enjoy a stimulating night out, 
go to apan.org.au to purchase your ticket. That's apan.org.au. And I'll just give you that address again, apan.org.au. And I'll be there, so I hope you can make it too. How to Make Trouble and Influence People 2016 Diary will be launched at Friends of the Earth Food Co-op on Friday, November the 13th between 6 and 8pm. Join us at 312 Smith Street for speeches, readings and performances of classic Australian protest songs by Laura McFarlane and Jimmy Ratt. A benefit for FreeCR and the Lost Said Ross Biological Reserve, the diary features 366 radical dates in Australian history plus dozens of images and stories. Copies will be available on the night or can be ordered via freecr.org.au. How to Make Trouble and Influence People is a FreeCR supporter. A new Prime Minister, but the same Immigration Minister. Doesn't matter. I'm speaking with Project SafeComs Coordinator Jack Smith from Narragin in Western Australia. Before I come to Peter Dutton, let me just refresh your memory and the memory of your listeners to um, what is the dominant spin line in this country for conservative politicians. Remember a man called Philip Ruddock? If you really have good memories, you remember him? Well, he's still there. He's still there as an old fart, the great-grandfather of the house. So in 1999, he used the word racket. There is a racket. Uh, you know, of course, racket, you know, assumes illegality, evading the law, conniving clique of usurers, a rip-off merchants, and, you know, breaking the law. There is a record. They all want to come to Australia. Whole villages are packing up in Afghanistan. And when they came here, said, well, look, they all came because they are wanting pert two-in-one shampoo. You know, the famous pert with conditioner and shampoo in the same bottle. And they came for medical outcomes as a record of refugees wanting to come to Australia. And there's my next quote, the next spin line, to get a migration outcome or to get a favorable migration outcome. They were the spin lines of Philip Ruddock in 1999, applying to Azaras running away from the Taliban and Iraqis running away from Saddam Hussein. That's Philip Ruddock for you. That's conservative politics by the Conservative Party under John Howard. Well, maybe you can even more refresh your memory by switching on your radio very many times and listen to David Cameron, the other conservative politician that conservatives in Australia like so much and listen too much, so much too. Because David Cameron trots out the same lines about refugees in Europe at the moment. Exactly the same spin lines. 
Now fast forward to last week. Peter Dutton from the Tony Abbott fame stopped the votes, period. Peter Dutton, the immigration minister, now says there is a racket on the row. A record of pregnant women seeking to come to Australia when they're pregnant, complaining to the activists wanting to enter the country to, here comes the quote, get a favorable migration outcome. And then, of course, what follows immediately is we will not give in to these record pregnant women. We will not give in. We have stopped the boats. We'll keep them out of the country. There's the conservative, disgusting spin. And that's the spin the whole country still keeps applauding because we have a new prime minister and we all love Malcolm Turnbull. He is such a great prime minister. Now, the proof in the pudding is that Peter Dutton, the old hand from the hardline Tony Abbott period, is happily continuing his portfolio as the immigration minister. He wasn't kicked out by Malcolm Turnbull, the radical amongst the liberals. Of course he wasn't. Because if he didn't keep in place these old, heinous, criminal, hardline policy determinations from Tony Abbott in relation to asylum seekers and refugees, he would be kicked out again of the Conservatives' leadership. They would kill him and murder him, so that the conservative branch faction of the Liberal Party can take hold again. So there's the self-sacrifice of Malcolm Turnbull, the once great dissenter, the suave talker, the more charming person than anyone else in the Liberal Party. He's got his wings clipped and he's got his ghoulies cut off by his own party. There we are. And then, of course, it's not enough. You know, we have this Somali woman. We bring her to Australia. 60,000 messages, 60,000 letters and petitions to the Peter Dutton and to um, Turnbull over the last couple of weeks, demanding we do the decent thing because she just did not just get pregnant by her husband. Of course, she was raped by people on Nauru. And, of course, she wanted an abortion. So we brought her to Australia at great cost on a, pla- on a plane, and after four days, she hadn't decided. So Mr. Dutton's deadline for decision-making about abortion ran out, and he flew her back. There are, you know, unbelievable things happening in this country, of course. Now, he has included that she can come back to Australia. It is week 16, by the way. If she wants an abortion, she can come back. And guess what? He's back on Nauru, and every single doctor who has any decency will advise her against it because it's too late. There we are. That's our great behavioral show as a result of this plod from Queensland who became a glorified bloody copper and is now the immigration minister, torturing people on Nauru and Manus Island and keeping the nation safe from these intruders. So there's one of the stories. Then fast forward to Western Australia, the Yonga Hill Detention Centre. You know, it's a it's a fantastic detention centre. I go past on the coach when I go to Perth, and it's fantastic to come past it 
at night time in the coach because you have this enormous floodlight. It, you know, it looks like a stadium, big floodlight at all the corners. Then it looks like uh, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the absolute glory. It's like a monument, but it's not a monument of gold buildings and domes, no. The only thing you see is steel fences, steel roofs of steel buildings, and razor wire, razor wire everywhere, floodlights and razor wire. That's the glory of Yonge Hill on the hill is as you travel to Perth from the country. I come past it, you know, every two months when I go to Perth, and every time I witness this absolute disgusting picture. It's the fortification of control by the state. So asylum seekers, Hazaras, and a young man of about um, 30 gets released from Yonga Hill on a bridging visa. So where do you go if you're Hazara? Well, you may as well go to Dandenong near Melbourne because that's where every other Hazara lives. That's kind of the, the enclave of the Hazara refugees. It's a really lovely suburb. So a lot of eateries, a lot of carpet sellers and little businesses and they're doing really well so the young man travels to Dandenong can't find a job doesn't have a job and then he hears that the immigration department and the police want to speak to him of course they want to re-detain him so he starts to live in the bush in his car and on Sunday evening it came to um, a horrific end because he was just beyond hope he had lost all the hope in his own future so he makes a call to um, two lovely young women in Perth, Sarah Ross and Michelle Bui, and he rings them with the Skype video call, and she says, look, I'm just here sitting in my car, I'm just really, really, really down, and I have nothing to live for. The only crime I've ever committed in my life is I became a refugee. And uh, as he is talking, he's setting himself alight. I haven't watched the video. I don't want to watch the video. If people can watch it or want to watch it, it's on the Guardian website. I didn't watch it because I couldn't stomach it. I had enough of the words. But he is, um, he is now, um, 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 he's been found by the police. Um, he set himself on fire and uh, ended his life on uh, Sunday night. So there we are. Here's the glory of this great international nation, famous nation in Australia, who has just confirmed, yesterday it was confirmed with a big press conference by Julie Bishop, that we want to be part of the United Nations Human Rights Council in about 10, 15 years. There we are. That makes you feel better. That's your story about Australia. What can you say? That was Jack Smith from Project Safecom, a human rights group, very important, very small human rights group in Narragin, Western Australia, southeast of Perth. On Sunday, October the 25th, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, representing over 40 unions, Palestine solidarity groups and civil society organizations around Australia, will be holding its annual fundraising dinner at Aurora Receptions in East Brunswick. The dinner will be chaired by the writer, comedian and political satirist Brian Doe. 
APAN is the only national-level Palestine advocacy organization in Australia. If you want to support the Palestinians' struggle for freedom, meet interesting people and enjoy a stimulating night out, go to apan.org.au to purchase your ticket. That's apan.org.au. Finally, on Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with writer, commentator, author and playwright Samar Sabawi, currently living in Melbourne. Samar, can you first talk about the mass media's coverage of the situation in Palestine over the last month or so? It's portraying it as a break of or an escalation of violence. It is blaming the lost lives and uh, the uh, troubles that we're seeing in, on our screens and the stabbings and the um, Israeli attacks on Palestinian civilians on the rise in violence, as if violence was in itself was the perpetrator of what is going on and the cause for what's going on, completely lacking from most mainstream media coverage is the context uh, of this violence. It is not enough to say the violence has uh, taken, claimed the lives of so many people. What is claiming the lives of the people in Palestine and in Israel is the occupation of the Palestinian people, the subjugation of the Palestinian people, the denial of the rights to the Palestinian people by a state that gives preferential treatment to its Jewish citizens treats its Arab Palestinian citizens as a second class and warehouses the remainder of its non-citizen uh, Palestinian population that live within uh, and under its control, warehousing them into bantustans and stripping them of many rights that they're entitled to under international law. It's basically put the Palestinian people in a pressure cooker and taken away from them any hope of a future, taken away from them any hope of a Palestinian state, uh, a viable, contiguous Palestinian state, and expected them to not do anything about it, which, which is incredible, really, when you think about it. The Palestinians have been facing Israel's violence since 1948, since the original uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestine began with the establishment of the Jewish state on historic Palestine. And that policy of dealing with the Palestinian population through brutality and violence has not changed in all these years. It's incredible that they think that, you know, that we're going to see any change uh, in, in the Palestinian resistance or, or, or to break the Palestinian spirit, that the Palestinians will not be broken uh, and they will continue to fight for what is their right, uh, legitimately their right under international law. And they will continue to fight for justice and for equality. Uh, and we need to hear more about this in the media rather than just blame the whole thing on uh, just saying that violence is claiming the lives of the Palestinians. We need to say that apartheid and occupation are claiming the lives of many people in Palestine, Israel. What do you know about the situation in East Jerusalem at the moment? East Jerusalem has been placed under lockdown. There's heavy security presence in there. Uh, there's uh, the, the, the people in East Jerusalem have faced uh, incredible hardships over the past several decades. Uh, they are uh, in political limbo. They do not have political representation. They have uh, residence uh, IDs, uh, 
ID permits, sorry, that would that allows them to reside in in East Jerusalem, but they don't have many political rights that their Jewish counterparts who live on uh, in East Jerusalem, the settlers as well as the the ones who live uh, in the Greater Jerusalem area, have. They're under tremendous pressures. Uh, they face uh, complete excessive uh, brutality by the Israeli forces security forces. Israel um, has threatened that it would demolish the homes of the Palestinians if their children uh, are arrested for throwing stones or accused of uh, throwing stones or if they uh, launch any attacks against the Israelis. And under this pretext, many more permits of residents of East Jerusalem have been stripped. And um, so there's a real war that Israel is trying to rid itself of the Palestinian population that live in East Jerusalem. Of course, East Jerusalem is uh, on the on the other side, on the Palestinian side of the Green Line. It's it's considered under international law to be part of the future state of Palestine. Um, and yet, the the issue of the the residents of East Jerusalem remains in limbo. And of course, when when Israel built the wall as well, it it, it built the wall in a way that it kept East Jerusalem part of uh, the uh, the uh, greater, what they call the greater Jerusalem area, and uh, which meant that it severed East Jerusalem from the West Bank. So they do live in that kind of, uh, of isolation from the Palestinians on the other side. They are not allowed to stamp the right to family reunification. So if you're an Arab living in East Jerusalem and you want to marry someone who doesn't, who lives in the West Bank, you cannot bring your spouse to live with you in East Jerusalem. You have to leave. They, have, they, they face restrictions on building permits, and uh, so that the natural growth of the Palestinian population in East Jerusalem, which requires to go with it uh, more buildings, more houses, that's been denied to the Palestinians. And Palestinians who build without a permit, of course, risk having their houses demolished. So they've always been targeted by all these policies that uh, aim in the long run to be rid of the Palestinian population in order to Judaize the entire uh, Jerusalem area and so that Israel can fulfill its dream of uh, complete control over all of Jerusalem, including the eastern part. And what we're seeing now is mainly teenagers or older children battling against one of the most powerful militaries in the world and on top of that we've got the the settlers the colonizers who are heavily armed as well yeah there's been a lot of uh, people who've been commenting on how these youth who are uh, driving the uprising in in the palestinian areas are what they call the oslo generation they're young people who were born during uh, the Oslo years, they have, they don't know any other reality outside of the Oslo reality, uh, which meant uh, having double uh, t- tiers of oppression. They have to deal with the PA tier, the PA security forces, and above the PA security forces is the Israeli security forces. They grew up with promises of statehood being talked about, but had seen with their own eyes uh, that these promises were a farce and that, in fact, uh, the Palestinian statehood was uh, diminishing, uh, the possibility of it was diminishing in reality, uh, even as the rhetoric about Palestinian statehood became louder. Uh, They've seen with their own eyes the Israeli settlements expanding on their ancestral land. They have seen roads being closed off 
and not being allowed to be on these roads because these roads are for Jewish people only. They've seen several wars in Gaza uh, in which they felt completely helpless and could do nothing about it as Israel dropped tons of bombs on the civilian trapped population in the Gaza Strip. So this is a generation that has seen nothing uh, promising in their entire life. All they've seen is despair and brutality and incredible impunity by which the state of Israel acts. And they're not given any threads of hope. It's interesting to note that before the violence, um, the escalation in, in the violence, if I could use this mainstream language, before it erupted in, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and at the end of last month, Mahmoud Abbas was at the United Nations uh, General Assembly, and he addressed the assembly, and he said that he would no longer be abiding by the Oslo agreements, uh, simply because he felt that Israel was not living up to its, its obligations within the, the Oslo agreement uh, arrangement. And it was very interesting that he said that, because soon after that, we saw uh, the stabbings take place in Jerusalem, and then the entire thing unravel. The Palestinians know, and now it's been confirmed to them, that everything that had to do with Oslo was just a lie and a farce, and it was their design to give time to Israel to expand more on Palestinian land, and that the PA is completely helpless in the face of all of that, and that while the PA erected a Palestinian flag at the UN, which was celebrated as a fantastic symbolic gesture on the ground in Jerusalem, an Israeli Jewish uh, extremist minister the Minister of Education stormed into the Al-Aqsa with armed uh, security guards, and he defied the arrangement that has been in place since Israel annexed Jerusalem, which uh, prohibits Jews uh, from praying inside the Islamic holy site. They can go as visitors, and it can be coordinated with the Islamic Waqf institution that looks after the place, but they can't just storm in. And during those two weeks, there were so many restrictions on Palestinians uh, in practicing their right to worship in their holy site. All of this was happening at the same time, and I think Palestinians have just had enough. So this was a collective uprising by the young people who have absolutely no faith in their leadership. And their leadership know it. The Palestinian leadership has known and has been smart enough to not get in the way and to understand that they are as much a target of the anger of this young generation almost as Israel is. It seems, though, that Israel is going out of its way to make the situation worse. But just one example of refusing to hand the bodies of the young people who have been killed back to their families. Israel just acts vindictive sometimes. <laughs> you know, you see that. Um, there, there's so much unnecessary, vindictive, hateful, uh, what can I say, just reactions that we see from uh, Israeli decision makers all the time. I mean, what do you expect? For me, I just always go back to thinking of Shujaia and the unnecessary uh, revenge killing by the Israeli army that caused the massacre in that refugee camp in Gaza, in uh, in sorry, in in the Shujaia area in Gaza, in the 2014 war, you know, their decision makers in Israel, uh, people who are in a position of power in Israel, unfortunately, a lot of them have that kind of vindictive nature, 
and they speak the language of violence and they speak the language of anger and they are yet to perfect the language of humanity and I look forward to the day when that happens. I'm not holding my breath right now but it needs to change. That mentality needs to change. The lynch mob mentality needs to change. But there has to be pressure on Israel from outside the country as well and we've got Obama at the moment giving unqualified support for Israel's right to maintain law and order to protect its citizens, knowing full well what is happening to the Palestinian people. What are other world leaders? Is there any justice in anything they're saying at the moment? Well, you know, just to uh, stay on about Obama, the US has, has done an incredible job of making sure that Israel is able to commit the crimes that it commits. I was just reading the other day that uh, Netanyahu had actually walked out or delayed uh, talks about uh, expanding the agreement regarding the U.S. aid to Israel. So it wasn't Obama that was saying, I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm going to suspend talks about expanding aid to Israel. It was actually Israel that said to Obama, we will suspend talks about the aid that you, the U.S., give us because we're unhappy with you over the Iran deal. I mean, it's baffling. And now um, Netanyahu is saying, I'm ready to resume talks. So Obama and Netanyahu are going to start talking about aid. And the aid to Israel, which was $3 billion, they're talking about increasing it now to 3.6 to $3.7 million a year. And the the amazing part of it is most of the aid that the U.S. gives to Israel goes in the form of military aid and assistance. And that's the stuff that Palestinians are getting killed with. You know, the U.S. has a huge role to play in making these massacres possible, in making this aggression possible. We need international intervention for sure. I like that uh, that France is taking a shot uh, now and wants to approach the United Nations Security Council and is asking for international observers to protect the, the holy site, uh, the holy Muslim site, the Al-Aqsa. That's a good move, but the problem is at the Security Council, things get vetoed by the U.S., as this will be vetoed by the U.S., because Israel does not have any interest in allowing for international presence um, anywhere under its control. So, you know, we go around in circles, and that's where I think it becomes absolutely necessary and important and vital for grassroots movements in the U.S., in other countries around the world, to start speaking up because our governments are not doing a good job of it. So we need to move our governments into taking positive and not negative action when it comes to Israel-Palestine. And this can only be done by organizing at the grassroots level and by supporting Palestinian civil society's call for boycotts, divestments and sanctions. Uh, We're seeing many academics, especially in in the U.S., uh, have been coming out and supporting the call. Uh, Many cultural workers and artists and and musicians have been supporting the boycott call, and the movement is on the rise. It hasn't reached a pivotal point in the U.S., but I think eventually it will, and hopefully that will change, that will have a, a role to play in changing the way the current U.S. policy uh, in Israel is designed to feed uh, the Israeli military regime. 
It is biting, though, isn't it? The, the Israelis deny that it is biting, but they've got laws now to penalise people who take part in BDS. We do. and uh, But, you know, it's. I don't think people are, are really... I don't think laws can stop people from taking part in, in BDS. It might stop some people from being loudly advocates for the BDS, not many, but some. But, you know, a lot of my experience here in Australia has been with so many uh, academics that I know will uh, actively, uh, in their action, will not normalize with Israel, will not uh, accept uh, conferences if these conferences are organized by Israel. But the great majority of them, in fact, most, almost all of them, will not say that on record. They just whisper to me that, you know, we boycott Israel. So we boycott inaction. We, we come up with other reasons why we cannot participate. A lot of musicians have done the same thing, too. There's been lots of cancellations uh, of singers and artists who don't want to go to Israel. And they it's, it's called the silent boycott. They are silently making that decision. So laws cannot, change, cannot force people to buy Israeli products may uh, punish those who uh, put their, their, you know, themselves out there and publicly advocate for the boycott. But people like that are not scared from this legislation because we know that we are trying to save life in Israel and in Palestine. We know we are, we're working for a just cause. We're driven by that. So we're not scared. We're not intimidated. But for the majority of people that we're trying to educate, how do you, how do you punish someone for not buying an Israeli product or for not agreeing to go and, and, and have a, you know, sing at a concert in Israel. You can't. It's, 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 it's virtually impossible to control something like this. And the cat is out of the bag. Can you talk for a couple of minutes about the situation in Gaza? Well, things in Gaza have not, unfortunately, changed since the absolute um, bombardment and destruction of the city by Israel in 2014. There's been no rebuilding of the houses that were destroyed. Very little building material has been allowed in. You know, people are still facing the same issues with electricity shortages, water shortages. The tunnels between Egypt and, and Gaza, which were a lifeline for many of the population in Gaza, have been uh, closed off and actually uh, flooded with seawater by the, the the Sisi government in Egypt. Um, and the gates have been firmly shut, so it's been almost impossible for people to get in and out of Gaza. Medical issues, I can't even, you know, there's a long list of, of crises uh, in, in Gaza in, in terms of, of uh, medical issues. We've got breast cancer patients that can't get access to things that they require in order to get treatment. We've got dialysis patients uh, that are struggling. There's people who have severe psychological trauma that are not able to find the right help. It's just, I mean, I cannot put in words how bad it is in Gaza. And of course, it is so bad and it's forgotten because we only think of Gaza and we only pay attention to, to what's going on in Palestine when there's bombs falling on, or when there's people dying and we start counting the death toll. But the reality is it's the daily life under siege and under occupation that is, that is far worse than, than anything else you can imagine that needs to be talked about. And, and somehow, 
somehow we managed to normalize it in our minds. So it's no longer shocking to hear people talk about the situation in Gaza because everybody knows the situation in Gaza. You know, you get a nod of the head and the conversation moves on. So it's really, it's really terrible. And again, it speaks for the urgency for the international community and especially for grassroots movements to start putting pressure on their government because the the situation cannot be sustained the way that it is. Um, and, and we cannot allow the Israeli right-wing government forever to dictate how things will evolve in Israel-Palestine. There needs to be intervention. We need to make sure that Israel is accountable for the violations that it commits and that it will not commit any more violations. What are the immediate things that you would like people listening to this interview to do? I would like people listening to the interview to find out how they can help and, and plug into the, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement uh, website, find out more about this movement, find out more about what the Palestinians are asking for, find the facts, don't trust the mainstream media to deliver the facts to you, read the diverse, diverse sources of information and Try to speak out for the truth and, and for justice and for freedom. And never, ever buy into the idea that one people are born to be better than another people. Everybody is born to be equal. Everybody deserves equality. Everybody can live together in justice and in peace. And uh, we can coexist. Anyone who tells you that Arabs and Jews cannot coexist is only saying they can't coexist under the current circumstances of inequality. But I think if the system of apartheid collapses, and if we start looking at one another as human beings, we can move forward towards a better tomorrow. But for as long as one people are held uh, higher above everybody else, we're going to continue to see more of the same violence. And please join us at 5.30 this coming Friday outside the State Library in Melbourne for the speak out for Palestinian human rights. And that was Palestinian-Australian author, playwright, academic Sabah Sabawi, talking about the situation for the Palestinian people in both the occupied West, West Bank and also the occupied Gaza, because Gaza is just one big prison concentration camp. Friday night, State Library, 5.30, be there. And also get on the internet, boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS, and find out what you can do to assist. But do turn up on Friday afternoon, 5.30, at the State Library, which is the corner of, I think it's Little Latrobe and Swanson Street, and show your support for the Palestinian. Well, that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock in about... Um, Eight, nine seconds, we'll be hearing from Jonathan with Food Fight. So I'll say bye for now.